I am Diana Samuel, the senior editor of the journal. Today, we are going to be talking about a new study published in the journal, which used radiomic data extracted from the chest CT scans of patients with early stage non-small cell lung carcinoma to develop and validate a prognostic and predictive risk score and nomogram. The authors tested the ability of these tools to predict disease-free survival and determine which patients may benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. I am very happy to be joined on the phone by the senior author of the paper, Professor Anant Madabushi from Case Western Reserve University. He is also a research scientist at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. Anant has a background in biomedical engineering and radiation oncology. Based in the Center of Computational Imaging and Personalized Diagnostics, his work group uses a range of computational techniques, including machine learning, for the diagnosis, prognosis, and theragnosis of different diseases, including specific cancers. So I'd like to kick this off by asking you to tell us a little bit more about you, your career, and what got you interested in applying computational techniques, such as machine learning, to clinical problems. Um, thank you. Thank you, Diana, for, um, for giving me the opportunity to talk about myself and our work. So by way of myself, by way of introduction, you know, I've trained as a biomedical engineer all through uh, my career. I, I did my undergraduate work in India in, in biomedical engineering. I did my master's work at the University of Texas, Austin in biomedical engineering. And I did my PhD work in bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. And so I've had the, uh, the, the uh, privilege, therefore, of really um, working closely over the course of my training and subsequently with pathologists, with radiologists, with clinicians, with ontologists. And it's allowed me to really focus the computational, technical, image processing skills that I developed over the course of my training, but really align that in the context of clinical problems. And so in the course of these interactions, with the folks from the clinical community, it's allowed uh, myself to really understand what the, uh, the, the unmet clinical pain points are. What is it that really is critical for a clinician, you know, and, and in terms of managing treatment, in terms of managing the, 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 the strategies, the best appropriate strategies uh, for patients with a given disease. Thank you so much for that, that introduction, uh, and that's really interesting, and it leads nicely actually onto my next question, which is about the paper we are discussing today. So what was your inspiration for this study, and what specific problems did you see that you thought this line of research might be able to address? Initially, when we started work on applying you know, AI and computational imaging problems, or uh, working on these problems, a lot of the solutions that we were developing were from the perspective of the radiologist or the pathologist. We were trying to develop <clears throat> solutions to interrogating MRI scans or CAT scans or pathology images with, uh, with the goal of trying to provide decision support for the radiologist or for the pathologist. About 12 years ago, I had the good fortune of uh, interacting with clinical oncologists. And um, some of these folks I, was, um, I had a good fortune of meeting looked at some of the tools that I was developing as decision support tools or decision support aids for the radiologist and the pathologist and quite bluntly said to me, look, Anant, what you're doing is great, and I see that it could benefit the pathologist or the radiologist in, in, in interrogating the, the pathology images or the CT scans or the MRI scans, but it doesn't really help me as an oncologist 
in figuring out how to manage patients. But what you have here within your arsenal of tools could be very valuable to help me on a day-to-day basis with the clinical care and management of cancer patients. And I realized that there was a paucity of decision aids for oncologists in helping manage the treatment uh, of uh, cancer patients. And one of the first problems we worked on actually was in the context of breast cancer, where we realized that a lot of early stage uh, breast cancer patients could actually avoid chemotherapy. Uh, A lot of them could benefit from just hormonal therapy and surgery alone. And therefore, there was really a critical need to develop tools to help identify the 70% of these patients who could avoid the chemotherapy. And so working with our clinical uh, oncology colleagues, we started to really think about how to align these tools, not solely as providing decision support, like I said, for the radiologist or the pathologist, but really helping the oncologist identify you know, who had the more aggressive disease and therefore needed the chemotherapy, whereas you know, who are the 70% of who, the, the large majority of patients who don't need the aggressive therapy, who don't have the aggressive disease, and could therefore avoid the deleterious effects of chemotherapy, who could avoid the financial toxicity of chemotherapy, because we know it's expensive as well. And I'd say about seven years ago, I had the good fortune of meeting Dr. Valchetti, Dr. Ramzi Valchetti, who's now the chair of thoracic oncology at NYU. And we started to talk, and I told him about some of the work we were doing in breast cancer. And he said, hey, Anand, you know, in lung cancer, um, there's a huge unmet need. You know, we have a big problem as thoracic oncologists in, in addressing a very similar issue in early stage lung cancer because we know that, uh, you know, 40 to 50% of the patients um, will, will be fine with surgery alone. But it's this other set of, you know, maybe 40 to 50% patients who, uh, where, the, where the disease will come back even after surgery. And it's in those patients that we need to figure out whether they should be getting chemotherapy after surgery or not. But we don't have good tools currently to be able to address this. And so that was really the uh, sort of the, the beginning of the, the journey culminating in, in this paper, where we now wanted to develop tools that could not just tell us about, you know, who is likely to have recurrence of lung cancer after surgery, but more specifically, develop a tool that could tell us who could truly benefit from chemotherapy after surgery. You know, a lot of, a lot of papers that have come out, I'd say, in the last four to five years that are what we would call prognostic. There have been tools that have used radiomics, that have used machine learning, have used AI to analyze CT scans, to analyze radiographic images, to tell about the likelihood of disease recurrence, to look at a patient's scan and use AI or machine learning just to talk about the likelihood that after treatment, the disease will come back. And these are what are called prognostic tools. And these are important because it tells you about the severity of the disease. But from a clinician standpoint, from an oncologist standpoint, prognostic tools are only half the solution. Really what they need are predictive tools. And predictive in the context of oncology really has a very specific meaning. What it means is tools that allow the clinician to be able to identify who is truly going to receive added benefit from additional therapy. Um, The the work that uh, we've uh, presented in, in this Lancet Digital Health paper is I think the first example of where radiomics and AI and computational imaging have been used with CT scans in the context of early stage lung cancer, not just to identify who is likely to have disease recurrence following surgery, but specifically to identify 
who could receive added benefit from chemotherapy? Who could avoid chemotherapy after surgery? Because it's highly, it's highly unlikely that their disease is going to come back. That's really interesting. And it really highlights that at the heart of this study is aiding more appropriate management of cancer patients and understanding who would and who wouldn't benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. And on that note, you mentioned in the paper that the recommendation of this therapy for those with non-small cell lung carcinoma is a topic of debate, given that the available evidence of a survival benefit from this therapy is inconsistent. Could you perhaps comment on how you think your findings might add to this debate? Yes, that's a great question. And in fact, I think it reinforces the need for the tools like the one that we have presented in this paper. The big challenge right now is that it's clear that you know, a certain number of early-stage lung cancer patients need the chemotherapy. But it's also clear that a certain number of early-stage lung cancer patients don't need the chemotherapy. And the reason why there's a lot of debate in the literature in the field right now is because we simply don't have tools to figure out who is truly going to receive the benefit and who is not going to receive the benefit. And because there aren't really good predictive tools out there to help make this decision, that results in ambiguity. And so when you do these randomized clinical trials, and you, you, you know, of course, as, as you're aware, you know, randomized clinical trials, essentially the way they work is you've got, uh, you know, typically multiple different arms. Um, in the context of trying to address this issue of, you know, does adjuvant chemotherapy really help, um, you would have an arm where, you know, patients might get surgery alone, and then another arm where patients get surgery and chemotherapy. But because these trials tend to be randomized, you don't really have a good way of figuring out who is truly going to receive the added benefit of chemotherapy. I think it it further reinforces the point that we need better predictive tools to help in the management, to help in the identification of which patients should direct it towards one of the two arms. Um, And I think it's it's when we've got tools like that that really aid in that decision-making process that we're going to see a clear benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy in certain patients. Because Certainly, a, a, a significant number of these patients don't need the therapy. But we just don't have a good way of being able to identify that. And, and this is exactly why I think that this tool could have uh, clinical impact and, and, and is of clinical significance. That's great. Thank you. Um, as you mentioned, a primary aspect of this study was the development and validation of Curis, um, but also the nomogram you termed CureNom. How do you envision yeah. these being integrated into the clinical workflow? The, you know, when we started to think about developing the approaches, developing uh, the classifiers, you know, we looked at other groups, other works that have been published. And you, know, you heard a lot about machine learning classifiers and a lot of these artificial intelligence and machine learning classifiers. Excellent papers that have been published. But when we start to look at these approaches, and perhaps this is because we interact with clinicians as, as closely as we do, you know, we were very um, focused on trying to develop approaches or methodologies that the oncologist would end up using. So it's all well and good to create an artificial intelligence machine learning classifier, but it needs to be packaged in a way that really makes it easy for an oncologist to be able to use at the end of the day. And one of the things that oncologists have become accustomed to uh, have been these risk scores or nomograms, um, which um, you know have over the last you know 20 to 30 years uh, been um, in, in in a very significant way the, the only real decision aids that oncologists have had to really modulate uh, treatment uh, and, and manage a lot of patients. 
And so we were very acutely aware that you know we could create machine learning classifiers, but unless the classifier was really packaged in a way that provided an output, provided a measurement, provided a, a um, uh, piece of information that was digestible by the oncologist, it wasn't really going to have the kind of clinical utility um, that uh, that was needed. So the, the reason we wanted to set it up, uh, set up our classifiers at Curis, was exactly that. We wanted to make sure that we were able to provide a risk score that made it very easily interpretable to the oncologist and really help in, uh, in helping them decide as to you know, who needed the adjuvant therapy and who did not. The reason why we also went ahead and created uh, uh, the, uh, the Q-norm um, or a nomogram was because we also realized that while the imaging information, while the radiomics provided a significant amount of information, we didn't want to leave a lot of the information that was already on the table. In other words, we wanted to make sure that the clinical factors, the clinical variables, which very much part, which very much form the rubric of uh, tools that the clinician uses in daily practice to manage patients, we wanted to make sure that those were incorporated into the final decision making. So on the one hand, we wanted to demonstrate that Curis, or just a classifier based on the image features, is extremely useful, that it had prognostic and predictive potential. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that the ultimate risk score, the ultimate predictor, was taking advantage of all the possible information. And so QRISC was the image risk predictor based on the image features. QNORM was where we took our image classifier and really combined it with the other clinical pathologic factors as it relates to the patient. Uh, to really now create an even more advanced, um, uh, sort of sophisticated uh, predictor. Mm, that's interesting. So packaging the risk score in a way that's easily understandable to a clinician and the output itself right. is, is very relevant to that specific setting. So that's right. Obviously here you focus on non-small cell lung carcinoma. Could the approach taken here be applied to other cancers? Um, I, uh, I certainly think so. Uh, we, um, we have a number of other projects that are ongoing in our group. The, the, uh, the beauty of this approach is because it's really using routinely acquired scans, routinely acquired data. Uh, it's, it's very non-destructive and non-destructive in many ways. And what is interesting is that across the spectrum of uh, certainly cancer, uh, these, these these issues really plague uh, the oncologist on a daily basis. The oncologists are constantly struggling with, you know, which ones are the, the more aggressive, which ones are the less aggressive cancers, where do you need the more aggressive therapy. Uh, the kind of adjuvant therapy that you might want to invoke might be different. It might be radiotherapy, it might be chemotherapy, it might be immunotherapy. Um, but fundamentally, this issue of prognostic predictive tools, I think, really has implications for a number of different cancers. The implications of this work uh, transcend uh, other types of cancers and potentially other types of diseases as well. And so really future work is going to be focusing on how do we take this approach that we developed in non-small cell lung cancer and really start to apply it and demonstrate its utility for other cancers as well. Mm, interesting. So in terms of the clinical topic of the paper and also the methodology, what questions do you feel remain unanswered and what should the priorities be for future research in this area? Well, I'll give, I'll give my take on it. So one thing that, uh, like I said, was the 
you know, real deep understanding of what the clinical problem is. And so we made a very deliberate effort to not just focus on the prognostic aspects, which a lot of other people have done, but really think about the predictive piece. It's also important to understand that to be able to stand up a predictive classifier, you also need to have access to data sets with the two different treatments, right? So you couldn't really stand up a predictive classifier, and we couldn't have done that in this work if we had not uh, corralled a set of patients who got surgery alone and a separate core of patients who got surgery plus chemotherapy. Unless we had access to those two different sets of patients, we couldn't really have set up or stood up a classifier that was predictive. So one of the critical uh, challenges here is to make sure that when you start to think about standing up these classifiers or developing these classifiers, that you really have access to uh, patient studies that span the spectrum of the therapies that you want to investigate. So uh, I think I mentioned the, the uh, access to clinical trials. Uh, I think that is um, one of the, uh, the challenges, uh, opportunity, but also a challenge. Um, one of the things that we've been doing has been to work closely with cooperative groups to try to get access to their clinical trials. Um, it's, um, it's a challenge, but I think it's an opportunity because um, there's the legacy data, the historical data, the beauty, of course, working with uh, retrospective clinical trials in the context of the kind of work that we're presenting in this paper is that you're not destroying any tissue. You're only looking at getting access to scans. Scans, obviously, once they're acquired, because they're digital, of course, they, they're indestructible. They'll last forever. So the beauty is that the scans exist. But there's a process. You've got to go through a, a process of working with the cooperative groups, get access to these clinical trial data sets. I think that at the end of the day, one has to also demonstrate in a prospective way that these tools are going to truly provide benefit to the patient. And I think that in the future, as we start to think about the utility of these tools or the translation of these tools into the clinic, we have to be thinking deeply, not just solely in terms of retrospective validation, even with completed clinical trials, but start the process of prospective validation, some of these tools. So I think ultimately, uh, you know, we have to demonstrate both in a retrospective as well as a prospective way uh, that these tools really provide benefit uh, and really provide value to the oncologist and help in better patient treatment, patient care, patient management. And, and it's a journey, but I think that's, that's a huge opportunity because you know, otherwise we're not doing that. And, it's great. You wrote a paper, and, and that's wonderful. But uh, it's not moving the the clinical needle forward. It doesn't really impact patient care. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Anant. It was really interesting to hear your thoughts on how this study could aid better management of cancer patients and could also help overcome some of the black box concerns regarding these computational tools. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, and thank you for having me. You can read Professor Anant Madabushi's paper online now at The Lancet Digital Health. Thank you for listening.